So a few years ago, Maggie, Janet, and I headed west. We drove a circuit from Calgary to Canmore to Banff to Lake Louise on up to Jasper, where we stayed a while, then back east to Edmonton. And on our way south to Calgary, we went off the main highway and drove cross-country toward Drumheller, the Badlands, and the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology. And we drove through a little community called Big Valley. It wasn't very big. But we went off the we, we found a museum there that wasn't on the roadmap or our GPS. We drove by and discovered that it wasn't open that early in the morning. It was the Big Valley Creation Science Museum. And according to the website, its purpose statement is built from the foundations up for the glory of the Creator to display the evidence of his handiwork and refute the lie of evolution. Creation science. Offering scientific proof of the Bible's authority when the Bible tells how the world was created, and especially how humans were made and how humans fit, where humans fit in creation. Science that uses fossils to prove that all kinds of creatures existed together on Earth, including human beings, not very long ago. Some say as little as 6,000 years ago. After all, they say, the methods the liars use to date what they dig up still leave a shadow of doubt. But of course, on the day we passed through Big Valley, we didn't learn any of this. The Museum of Creation Science wasn't open. And if we'd been able to visit it, we might have saved ourselves another 45 minutes of driving to the Royal Tyrrell Museum of Paleontology, filled with lies. And we drove on after spending the better, and then after spending the better part of a day gazing at fossils and reconstructed dinosaurs and hiking a little bit around the hoodoos, I thought about the crowds in the museum. The Royal Tyrrell is a wonderful and very busy museum. And I wondered why, why so many people go there. Yes, kids, and, and especially boys, who just love dinosaurs. Parents, too. Many adults without children looking at everything with excitement, with their eyes as round as the zeros on the estimated age of a fossil. And even I came away with a sense that being a human in this world means accepting we are small. We inhabit barely a minute of the whole sweep of time, and we're part of something bigger and older than we can ever fully understand. Now that sounds like a religious experience. But is it based on bad science and outright lies? The museum in Big Valley offers proof that beliefs are true because science offers evidence. And at the museum in Drumheller, science offers evidence that can shape beliefs or at least provide a kind of religious or spiritual experience. But only one of those museums is built on a claim of absolute certainty. 
Now, Genesis chapter 1 doesn't mention dinosaurs. We have to grant that. Though it does say God created some sea monsters, it's vague about animals of the earth of every kind, including those that creep upon the earth. And we read that all the animals were vegetarians when God gave them life. And many of the big dinosaurs were vegetarians. So maybe, stop. We can't do that any more than we can solve the problem in Genesis 1 of God creating light and dark, night and day, before creating the lights in the sky that regulate them. And it doesn't solve the deeper problem, a question that's still asked by theologians. Was there anything in the deep, that boiling, roiling sea that God blew across, to begin the creation? Did God have already created stuff to work with? Stop, we can't do that either. We can't lay so much weight on a good old story that we crush it. So it seems we have two options. We can assume Genesis is historically sound, based in fact, and the evidence can be found if we look hard enough. That's the Big Valley solution. Or we can assume it's not true, disproved by so much evidence that we don't have to look anymore and leave Genesis 1 and 2, the whole Bible for that matter, or any religious story about the creation of the earth and, and of humanity, leave those to primitives and crackpots. And I know that's what some people who visit the Royal Tyrol Museum might very well say. But Genesis isn't science, and it's not history not in the way we would define history. It's not a fairy tale either. It's not a fantasy. And it's not so old and uninformed that we sophisticated people can toss it away. It's true. It's true, but it offers us a different kind of truth than science does. The ancient writers used their God-given, spirit-inspired imaginations to put some profound truths into story form. One of the reasons for reading the whole thing this morning was so that you could pick up on the repetitions, because that's an oral storytelling technique, and in the ancient world that was a memory aid, so people could repeat the story from memory, and the story spoke truths to them. Those truths don't all ring for us in the same way they did for the people who wrote Genesis. And they wrote in Moses' name 2,500 years ago, counting back, if they counted at all, to a time before Moses, maybe 3,000 years before their time. And they told these stories to remind Israel, and within the canon of the Bible, to remind us who they were, where they came from, and who they belong to. The lack of proof or their ignorance of scientific method didn't trouble those old saints one bit. So what truth does the first creation story in Genesis 1 tell us? For one thing, it's all about God. God in relationship with the world God created. And God continues to call to creation. And it's about creation responding 
or not. The two creation stories in Genesis have a lot in common with other ancient creation stories. Scholars figure our creation stories are new and they borrowed from older stories with one exception, and it's a big exception. In the Genesis stories, one God creates and doesn't stop, won't leave the creation alone. Other ancient peoples believed one or another of their gods created the earth and then left it alone or went off to fight with other gods over control of it. The rituals of, say, the Canaanites were about coaxing one god or another to come back and make it rain or stop raining, make the land fertile or protect the crops. And in some of those old, old stories, a god creates humans to prove to the other gods that he can do it. And once he's proved that, he just leaves them alone, tosses them away. But in Genesis, God calls humans into being to be partners with one another and to be God's partners in creation. In God's own image, God created them. God's image and likeness. And one way to understand that in ancient times, a powerful king would send his ambassadors around the kingdom or anywhere in the world, and they would bear with them the king's image and likeness. And that was a sign that where they were, wherever they were, the king was there and his power and his will would be done. Another way to think about being made in God's image is that God endowed us with abilities, powers even, to act as God does and to do God's will. And it's clear in Genesis 1 that creativity and freedom are two of God's personal gifts to us. Walter Brueggemann says it so simply, creation is a special treasure of God. And I'll say more, God trusts us to keep the treasure. And there are two troubling words in Genesis 1, at least in English. God grants humanity dominion over the earth and orders humanity to fill the earth and subdue it. And for ages and ages, human beings have been taking those words as license to do as we choose, to take and consume, tame and control, destroy if we wish as if we have God's approval on all of it. And sometimes people say, well, if the world belongs to God, then the world's fate is in God's hands, so let's just enjoy using it as long as we can. And the Hebrew word behind subdue is almost always used in a negative way. It's to take by force, to repress and control, to rape an enemy. But the earth isn't our enemy. And I think the ancient storytellers chose that strange word because in their experience, Mother Nature was often very unmotherly toward them. How could we dare try to subdue something God calls good every step of the way? We can't control nature as we're painfully aware today as storms bigger than anyone can remember rage over the mid-Atlantic. We can't control creation, but we can make peace with it and understand our place in it and seek and uphold God's will for it. 
And we can protect people who are vulnerable to the destructive forces that can emerge at any time. But dominion is a troublesome word, too. And we may think it means absolute rule, complete ownership, but it's clear in Scripture that whatever powers and privileges humanity may have in this world, they're meant to be used in the same way God's power is best known in this world. And God's power is best known in creation and creativity. And the ideal ruler, the one who has dominion and is worthy of it in the Bible, is always described as a shepherd, not a tyrant, a shepherd who creates, protects, nurtures, feeds, comforts, lifts up those who've fallen, and seeks those who've turned and run away. So if human beings have dominion over the earth, it's not ours by right. Creation is God's gift to us, and our responsibility is huge. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 call us to listen for God calling us, inviting us into partnership, to share in the ongoing work of creating and sustaining and nurturing and restoring what God has made. And Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 remind us that we have the freedom to say no, to refuse God's invitation, but even if we do turn away, God will never leave us alone. We often talk about care for creation in church, and we say it's the right thing to do, consuming less, recycling more, preserving wetlands and wildernesses. Our ancient story offers a theological reason for listening, for living carefully, listening carefully for God's call and living carefully within nature on this planet. And to live and do our part in creation, we accept God's invitation to partnership to live up to God's trust in us, to be creative, and to continue the work of creation. Amen. Thanks be to God.